that I went and walked through Savile Row, which is sort of the street yeah. for tailoring. That was pretty special. Seeing um, seeing the company that dressed uh, Mick Jagger and the Beatles, um, seeing all these things who, who had great social impact, standing there and knowing that I too was a tailor in London, that was very special. the podcast for introverts, extroverts, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Chelsea Heaney, and our guest today is an old friend of mine. He's here today to talk about his experience as being an apprentice tailor currently living in London. Please welcome to the show, Richard Saxby. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, Now, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, so I am a tailor. I'm a bespoke tailor, which means that the suits, which is mostly what I make, um, the suits that I make are totally handmade and totally custom to each individual. So very, uh, very much a luxury industry, which has its upsides and its downsides. Yeah. So you are a tailor now. I thought you were still an apprentice. You're, you're a full-on qualified tailor? Uh, well, there's there's no sort of clear qualifications. Not anymore. There used to be. There used to be colleges and programs where you would get a certificate at the end mm-hmm. um that's much sort of less important than it used to be um mm-hmm. it's more about if you can convince a tailor to teach you and you stick with it then at some point you become a tailor yeah. um my current job title is quite amorphous um i think i'm technically an undercutter or maybe a journeyman tailor or a, like there's a lot of different ways you could describe it yeah. Um, but I'm beyond the level of apprentice, under mm. the level of master. <laughs> <laughs> um, that would be so awesome to be able to call yourself a master. <laughs> mm. That would be amazing. Put that on your um, business cards. Yes, exactly. Professional master. Exactly. Um, when did you first start to get interested in tailoring? Uh, I have this distinct memory of this one night, I think in year 11, when I had my little iPod touch and I was so excited Um that I could do all this research oh God, and I just, I, I would just go. That so long ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just went down this rabbit hole and it was, it was a pretty shallow rabbit hole. I was just sort of reading Wikipedia things, but I was reading all these different details about the history of men's suiting and how it is made. Um, and sort of ever since that night, it was always sort of ticking over in my brain and I always knew I wanted to make something, but I didn't know what that was. Um, I went to uni, did six weeks of an art degree, didn't get to make anything with my hands and stopped doing an arts degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked around, I tried bookbinding, I tried shoemaking. Uh, I almost I got offered an apprenticeship as an undertaker, but um, eventually I ran into Charles. I was visiting every tailor I could in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. There's maybe three or four in Melbourne, which is bespoke tailors where they do everything. Um, I visited them all, and the, most of the time their advice was uh, be born in Italy 50, 60 years ago if you want to become a tailor, because that's how Good. they became tailors. Yes. <laughs> um, and eventually I ran into Charles, who is without a doubt one of my heroes, um, because when I went to him and asked him, and I said, I would like to get into tailoring, and I would like to know how you got into it, his response was, well, uh, 60 to 70 years ago, 
Europe tore itself apart. <laughs> he proceeded to um, he proceeded to explain the Second World War to me, um, and then followed on with and so my father wanted all of his children to have opportunities and not to be a farmer like him. But, you know, we had destroyed Italy, so there weren't many opportunities. So I tried to become a plumber and I couldn't. So I became a tailor. <laughs> um, and from that day, it was, it was very slow with Charles. But from that day, about six months later, I brought, you know, I would, I would go and see Charles occasionally. And eventually I brought him um, a pattern I was working on. Um, for a pair of trousers out of a book I'd found online and he looked at it and he looked at me and shook his head and said no oh, <laughs> you, you don't have hips like Maria Sharapova was his thing um <laughs> I had gone overzealous on the hip curves um and so he he said come in once a week and we'll sort this out we'll sort out your pattern and then maybe we can make you a pair of trousers mm-hmm. um and then that's how it started so one day a week I went and I started with pockets um which is sort of the thing that takes the most time on the smallest area of a garment. Pockets are very tricky, lots of layers. Uh, and then I worked up from there. And within a year, I made myself a suit um, for my brother's wedding. And within that year, I had my first customer uh, who I made trousers for, who I've now made seven or eight pairs of trousers for. Is my oldest customer. Um, yeah, and then I was with Charles for three years for various amounts of time a week and had a little workshop on my own. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say um, that, so we met when I was about 16, you were probably maybe 17 or 18. I can't remember how much older than, than mm. uh, me you are. And um, it was probably like a year or two later that you sort of started doing the tailoring. And I remember when you told me that and I was just like, that is the most on brand thing I have ever ever seen from a person. I went, yep, that makes sense. Richard's a tailor that I can see that. Yeah. I I have a a terrible habit of confirming everyone's suspicions. Sort of whenever (laughs) people discover more about me, they tend to go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm never quite sure what to feel about that, but yeah. <laughs> um, and we touched on this a little bit, but um, in terms of the training and things, you said it's it's not so much a you know a formal degree or a TAFE mm. course or anything anymore. It's just sort of finding someone that's that's willing to train you. Yes, um, I think that is while charming, it is a very outdated model um i I think there is value there is definitely value in getting a if you are someone if i if i was to shift into giving advice to somebody who wants to become a tailor there is definitely value in getting a degree there's definitely value in in something in pattern cutting or in the hand sewing or something that will give you part of the skills but tailoring such as it is a lot of the secrets are locked up in the heads of the people who do it and a lot of the craft comes from what I think has to be a slow process of learning. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's good for people to disrupt that in the ways that they can um, by incorporating some of the things that they learn from more traditional fashion schooling. Um, but if you want to become a tailor at some point, you are going to have to spend a long time doing little stitches 
if you were trying to get even if you're trying to get into the cutting side which is uh, broad strokes tailors under the heading are separated into tailors and cutters tailors being the people who actually do the sewing who actually make the suits the cutters being the people who cut the patterns which is the actual template for the garment um, which they would do after meeting a meeting a customer taking their measurements and discussing with them the purposes and the intentions for the garment. So would, so would they then sort of be the person designing the suit, the cutter? Yes. That is, it is, this is the thing where it's, it's hard to find words that cross over because tailoring has been isolated from fashion. It's in the actual trade of tailoring. It's been isolated from fashion in for such a long time for a number of reasons, um, not least of which is the... Um, Tailoring is what happens when fashion becomes men's work. And so there's a whole lot of baggage there, which is to say there's this, um, you, you, take a, you, you take a craft once it starts to become, and which is often done by women, once it starts to become appreciated and there's money in it, men move in. Hmm. Um, so there's a whole lot of baggage there, um, yeah. which I, I, I don't know enough to speak to. But that's sort of one of the elements that's isolated it from the fashion industry at large. Um, I think for its own detriment. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you as well, you you were saying that, you know, when you were first starting to approach tailors and stuff, you know, they were all sort of saying, you know, be born in Italy 60 years ago. If there's not that many well-experienced tailors willing to share that experience, like you said, sort of locked in their brains, do you think that tailor tailoring will start to die out more? Demand is growing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say perhaps what that demand will look like after the uh, current time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everything, everything will be different after this year, um, as it is after every year, but some years are more impactful than others. <laughs> uh, but demand is growing. There is a lot of young people coming in in a way that the, tailoring skipped a generation and a half. Yeah. Um, sort of. It was. It's been on the decline since the '60s, and really hit a, really hit the bottom of the um, the valley in the '80s and '90s. Um, but since the early 2000s, the whole sort of slow fashion rejection of the wastefulness of high fashion, and in general, sort of people looking back to for a bit of authenticity, mm-hmm. has led people to come back to tailoring. The the menswear, the online menswear community is enormous and has huge amounts of money (laughs) um so i think there will be there will be more opportunities and they will unfortunately look like things that i won't necessarily recognize because i'm no longer in that position but i think for someone who wants to get into it there are huge amounts of resources online hundreds of years of books that have all been digitized and and that's really a large part of how i learned Mm-hmm. I, ha- I have a very large library of digitized books that are mostly out of copyright, mm-hmm. um, published by publishing houses that just publish tailoring books, um, which no longer exist. Yeah. So you can't find these things in, in print anywhere, but they have the sum total of tailoring knowledge over the last centuries. And I would recommend anyone who wants to get into it to look for those. Or if they're listening to this podcast, uh, reach out to me. I'll make sure you have my um, my details if anyone does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Cool. Because there is a everyone <laughs> everyone helps each other in tailoring. It's yeah. quite a small knit. It does get very clicky at times, but I think most if you can most get... places and most things do eventually. Exactly. Yeah. Um, if you can get in you, through persistence, skill, luck, and chance, you're in as long as you want to be. Yeah. As long as you keep up the hard work, which yeah. is as as it is with so many careers. Yeah. Um, there right. is a lot of luck. Yeah. Um, and going back to sort of you more specifically, um, yes. you know, obviously you enjoy this work, you enjoy doing it with your hands. What do you think is is the hardest thing to make? The hardest thing to make would probably be that this comes into the hardest thing that I'm likely to make because the hardest thing to make is probably the robes to be worn at the coronation by the incoming uh, monarch. My sister, when I told my sister that I was interviewing you, she said that I should ask you if you'd ever made a piece for the royals. Um, no, that all that all belongs to Geese and Hawks and Eden Ravenscroft and <laughs> half a dozen other names that have got the royal warrant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the, the hardest thing that I'm likely to interact with would be black tie, so a tuxedo. Yeah. Um, and for that, the more specifically, the trickiest bit is the lapels, which are either grosgrain or satin in their finish, um, traditionally silk, which is why the lapels of tuxedos always look a little bit different. And that's got that's got a long history that goes back to um, the formal court wear, the tails, the the dinner suits, the the dinner dress, which would have been full white tail, mm-hmm. um, has always had that that contrast lapel. And when the tuxedo, the shorter, sort of cl- more close to a regular suit, but still formal form emerged, they kept those details. And that is a silk that you have to be very careful when you handle it. You can't oversteam it. You can't fold it. You can't press it. You can't. Uh, if you stitch through it and undo it, it will show the stitches. So you have mm. to be right the first time. And there is this, because it's on the lapel, the, the bit of the jacket that folds back out of flap on the front edge um you have to have this perfectly calibrated amount of fullness to roll over the break which is where the lapel folds back and into the inside of the jacket while keeping a smooth line the whole way so it needs to be loose enough to roll but tight enough that you don't have any any fold or crease or marking there that's wow. probably the trickiest bit. <laughs> I feel like right now my brain is doing like you know that that meme of Winona Ryder at the Oscars with like the confused look on her face and all like the maths equations. You talking mm. then? I feel like that was the look on my face because that that sounds insanely difficult, um, <laughs> very complicated to to work with. Hmm. Um, it's one of the things I love about tailoring is the endless jargon and it's the the language of a craft has always fascinated me and there's so much slang that is so specific to tailoring because there are so many processes and uh, objects and tools and stages that are so unique to tailoring that they all need their own words. Um, yeah, that's fair. Which I've, which I've loved. Yeah. Now, from the hardest piece to make, what is your favourite thing to make? Um, Making a pair of trousers that actually looks good mm-hmm. is so satisfying. Yeah. Um, it's it's this real thing. It's Once you actually get into the trade and you have a house that's big enough, people tend to split into trouser maker or coat maker. Um, okay. 
so again, it, it's as 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 your tailoring house gets bigger, you can sort of focus people more and more. Mm-hmm. Or if your tailoring house is really small, you have you can have one person who does everything. Yeah. So it's, it's a very strange thing where you can have one person who does everything, or you can have fifty people who work on the same garment. Yeah. Well, maybe seven. <laughs> but making a pair of trousers that fits, that falls nicely, that looks good when a person is walking or sitting, that's very satisfying. Mm. And that's uh, not something you get to do very often. Most people's trousers look fine, but they don't look amazing. Yeah. Uh, but that's because it's almost impossible. You sort of imagine if you need something that looks good when someone is standing and sitting, imagine the two totally different shapes that you yeah. are wrapping. Yeah. <laughs> and making something that will not have a crease out of place in any scenario is... Well, it's ridiculous. You're working with humans. Most of it is nothing standard. Yeah, yeah. Um, why why should people buy tailored clothes? You know, what what is the the difference in in I guess quality and you know what? Obviously, it's going to be a lot pricier to buy a bespoke suit than to get one off the rack. Why should people do that? A well-made suit will last a lot longer. A, a, a well-made suit taken care of should last you 20 to 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is sort of, I mean, that sort of only really works if you wear suits often, that that um, value proposition. Um, but if you're, even I think if you are, you know, you're getting a suit for your wedding and you'd like to have a suit to wear to other weddings, Mm-hmm. To, to other formal events in your life, you could very well have one very nice suit. Um, it is, of course, you know, it sort of only really matters if you wear suits. But I think that there is a real versatility in a in a properly bespoke suit because you can go into it and think, and well, what do you want to do with it? Is this something you're wearing to work? Is this something you're wearing to events? Is this something you're wearing because it fits your everyday aesthetic? Mm-hmm. Or is this very much a special event thing? Um, and you can be part of that process, which is the other big draw, is that with proper bespoke tailoring, we have two to three fittings where you try on the garment in an unfinished state, mm-hmm. where we make adjustments to the fit and to the look. We can totally reshape the lapel or adjust the position of a button or change the lines, take the legs in or out, do all of these things through these fittings. And at every step of the way, you are involved. Obviously, mm-hmm. the tailor will be acting as the expert, but the, the customer is part of the process. Yeah. And that's something you can't get elsewhere. So sort of take me through that. If, you know, I'm a customer wanting to get a bespoke suit, I've never done it before, I don't know what I'm doing. From when I walk in the door, what would my experience be like as a client to get that suit made? It uh, it depends on the place that you're going, but I'll talk as if you're coming to uh, the company I'm working for, Whitcomb mm-hmm. and Shaftesbury which is uh, mostly by appointment, but we do take a few walk-ins. Um, you buzz up, you come into the building, you come into our third floor workshop, which is lovely and light-filled and has the cutting bench along one wall. And then, you know, a lovely little armchair, a lovely little fireplace and some armchairs. It's very English. And <laughs> we'd get you a coffee and sit down. And the first questions we would say, if you were, the first questions we would ask if you were a new customer is, have you had anything made for you before? And then 
what do you know about the process? Because it is very much about finding out what people expect and working from there. And then we ask, then we go back to that question of what is this suit going to be for? Um, for us, a large amount of our suits are for the sort of industries where people wear a suit every day. Mm-hmm. And so we, we go through a lot of straight up and down blue and gray suits. Mm-hmm. But then we have we have all the weddings, we have all the special events, sort of people just getting it just because they need something special. But then we have the people I really like, which are the enthusiasts who just like clothes and just like wearing yeah. special things um, that they can't find elsewhere quite often. Quite often people come to us and say, well, I was looking for this, but I couldn't find it in exactly the detail I wanted. Can you mm-hmm. do it? Um, from there, we'll get you a little coffee and we'll go and look at fabric. Um, we have at Wickham and Shaftesbury at least 5,000 different samples of cloth. We, we get, every year we'd probably get 20 or 30 new books and each book has up to two, 300 samples. Wow. <laughs> which, is also, which is also a wonderful stage. And then so we yeah. go through and we pick, you know, based on the intention, if this is a holiday suit that you want to wear and um, on the Seychelles, we'll suggest linen. If it's something you want to wear to work, but you want it to be hard wearing, we'll say, well, what about this wool mo- mohair mix? What about this? If you want something a bit more luxurious, what about silk? What about cashmere? Um, so we'll go through all of that, and the fabric very much dictates. Uh, the, the fabric is a very significant choice, and so mm-hmm. that's sort of one of the first things we do. And then we'll talk about fit and and style. That's all about like the the width of the lapel, the 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 shape of the pockets, the overall sort of sculpturedness of a jacket. Because one of the things about tailoring um, is the invisible stuff on the inside where all the handwork is which is where we put the structure in through uh, multiple layers of different canvases, which have been hand-stitched together to hold a shape. Mm-hmm. And we can decide how much you want that. We have some people who want their suit to be like a suit of armour. They want it to be you know, a centimetre and a half thick and look as good just like standing up next to them as it would on them. <laughs> and then we have people who want to be able to take their jacket off, roll it into a bag and just kick it through a window and then go through the window and put it back on and have it still look nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that too, and you have very, very little in the way of canvas. We would recommend a cloth that's got really good spring to it that's not going to crush. Or we'd recommend one like linen that crushes as part of its aesthetic. Um, so there's a lot of moderating people's expectations where they say, well, I'd like to be able to do this and do this, but I'd want never to see a crease. And we sort of have to say, well, that's not actually possible. Here are the things that are crease resistant. Here are the ways that you can look sharp all the time with little work, which is what they actually want. Mm. Um, there's a lot of interpreting because customers come to you through a lens of not necessarily being experts and so the 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 role of the cutter quite often is interpreting what it is they actually want yeah by reframing what they say and presenting it back to them until you meet something that both people understand yeah um which is a really interesting part of that sort of customer craftsman relationship yeah um so then that that first meeting lasts about half an hour to an hour and then if all goes straightforward we would then cut a suit and then we would make it in london we would take it to a first base which is a garment you can put on but there's no permanent stitches okay there's no pockets cut through there's no lining it's just the canvas and the outside shell the the fabric of the garment um 
stitched together by hand mostly with uh, bright white thread, which is the basting cotton, which we use whenever we want to temporarily fix things together. Mm-hmm. You would come in, you would try that on, um, and that's when we would double check. Um, we double check some of the measurements. Sorry, in, in, in the first, that's the third stage. Is, uh, come in, talk about it, pick a cloth, talk about the styles, and then we take your measurements. And we take mm-hmm. somewhere between 15 and 25 measurements. Depends on the clients. Sometimes you need fewer, sometimes you need more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go, we draft the cloth, we take it to that first fitting stage. You'd put it on, we'd double check. There are some things that it's just not worth measuring until you can actually put the garment on someone. Um, the sleeve length, for example, it's just not worth it until you can actually put it on someone. Okay. Um, again, assuming that all goes fine, we will decide then whether we need to do uh, sometimes another based fitting if there's a few things to fix up, especially with a, a first-time client. Uh, so we might have two or three more fittings at various stages of greater or less construction. Um, the company that I work for, we do most of our manufacturer in India with tailors who have been trained by British tailors who go over a couple of times a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the company that I work for, a lot of this, these intervening stages, it, it's going to India and then coming back. Oh, okay. Um, well, we, we try to do that once per garment um, to yeah. try and cut down on the, on the air miles. Because we also have uh, a few tailors in London who can do can do everything, but we are focused on smaller parts of the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we do a final fitting or a, a collection fitting, which is the garment is completely finished. And if it's if we put it on the customer and it fits, they take it away. Um, we, we we get it to that stage where it is ready to be taken away. But if there is some little thing, um, we will then fix that. Um, over the next week and then give it back. And that, that process for a first-time customer takes about three months. For existing customers, it can be very different. For some of our customers, they call, they say, I would like a blue wool suit, and that's it, because they've been having stuff made by our company for 15 years. We yeah. have their pattern uh, zeroed in so well that we can just cut a suit and know it'll fit them. Yeah. Yes, yeah. if you're a brand-new customer, it would take about three months. Yeah. Um, the actual working on that one garment is anywhere between 60 and I don't know, 60 and 90 hours mm-hmm. over all of the, the people who, you know, that each, each garment is basically just is only handled by a cutter and then it will be handed to a specific coat maker and a specific trouser maker. Yeah. Um, okay. Even in our, in our workshop in India. And if you come to us again, we will send your garments to the same coat maker and same trouser maker because yeah. While we have, uh, we have like a strong house style, and there's consistency across all our coat makers. There's always a little thing, a little stitch, a little bit of handwriting yeah. in every garment. And so you want to go back to the people who you know who that makes sense. Stitch something a certain way. Yeah, yeah. And um, do you personally and, and the company you work for only make menswear? No, we do make some women's wear. It's not as mm-hmm. much as I'd like. Uh, women's wear tends to be a bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the demands of women's fashion are obviously quite different. Yeah. And so there is there is a lot of knowledge there that is still developing <laughs> yeah. for, for me and my company. But we, we've made um, – it is, it is maybe a dozen women's suits in the six mm-hmm. months that I was working there. 
Well, maybe less, but um, yeah, it tends to be a lot more. With women's, it tends to be a lot more separate. So a, a, a sports coat and some trousers in totally different cloth rather than a full suit in one Yeah. Color. Yeah. yeah. A um a friend of mine was telling me she she was getting married next year, uh, and she was going to different tailors to get a bespoke suit made for herself. Um, and they basically were like, Here are the colours we have for women. And she was like, Well, I want that colour, which is not in the mm. women's selection that you've given me, but it's the same fabric. And they're like, Oh no, we only use them for the men's suits. It's like but it's hang on so mm. yeah I, and so that it, so that would be a and this is the thing is because it's tricky because a lot of them will use the the language that makes this very unclear but that would be a made to measure tailor not a bespoke tailor which is to say mm. that they completely outsource all of their all of their pattern cutting all of their making they are just a a sales front yeah. Which is to say they wouldn't have the control because they're because they're sending this all to a factory and there's a, a um an application like a an order form ecosystem they have to adhere to. Mm-hmm. They can't just put this fabric number in the women's suit thing. Whereas a bespoke tailor can do that. Can do that because for yeah. a bespoke tailor, um, again, I, I I will admit a lot of tailors are very old and very old fashioned. There are. There are some tailors who you'd go to them, you you would go to them as a woman and say, I want this sort of suit. And they would go, but no, that's a man's thing. But you're but, a woman. Mm, but mm. there are, there there is a huge influx of young people into the industry that is changing. More that's women's cool. wear is being made, um, yeah. which, is, which I think is so painfully obvious as, even just to as crudely put it in the terms of, um, of business it's so painfully obvious an underserved market yeah <laughs> it's, it, it's i, I can't understand why you would be, mm, is that we we make we make amazing things why are we not trying to sell them to everyone um as well as separate to all of the um social ramifications of people making those decisions yeah um as savory as they are um yeah uh now you mentioned before that um, you're now in London, so you're initially from Melbourne. Um, how recently did you did you move, and what sort of sparked that move? So I moved over here in September of last year. Uh, for the year preceding that, I was working for a menswear company in Melbourne uh, as a tailor. Um, I was hired as an apprentice there, but it became rapidly apparent that I was the only person who knew what I was doing there and so I went from my first on my first day I was asked to make a full three-piece suit (laughs) and then on my second day I was asked to make a different suit but could you do it today please (laughs) oh oh good Um, good and then within my before the end of my second week I was being asked to make women's a suit for a woman um, which was something I had never done Mm-hmm. Um, and while the making is almost identical, it is in the pattern cutting where there are differences. Women yeah. do tend to be different shapes, um, and so that was an interesting challenge. But that's what that year was: was a lot of interesting challenges and interesting decisions made by management. But through them, I spent three weeks with uh, Wickham and Shaftesbury, the company I work for now, in their workshops in India, which was absolutely fascinating. 
because that was the first time it was the first time I'd seen more than two tailors in one room. <laughs> um, suddenly being in a room with uh, 25 craftsmen who had, you know, had been doing these things for at least four or five years each and some of them for 30. Mm. It was amazing. Um, and then after that three, during those three weeks, I became, uh, I, I had some really lovely interactions with the owners of the company. And then when I moved back to Melbourne, Six months later, the company I was working for um, was going out of business. And the owner of that company reached out to the owner of Whitcomb and Shaftesbury asking if they'd take me on. I wasn't expecting anything to come from it because it was so wild a proposition that mm. I would go from, from Melbourne at my level of learning, which is at that point I'd been doing it, I'd been doing tailoring for five years and I'd mm. made, I don't know, 20, 30 suits, 40, 50 pairs of trousers. Um, but I still didn't think that I was I was quite ready for London. But when the owner of Whitcomb Shaftesbury called, which I was expecting to be a very polite uh, advice call, one of the first things he said was, well, when can you come over? Wow. Um, <laughs> which was amazing. <laughs> I, I have been, throughout my career, I have been very lucky many times. Um, and that was one of those times. And so uh, a couple of months after that phone call, I moved over here um, and I, I remember the, the first day of, of me being in London, I went and walked through Savile Row, which is sort of the street yeah. for tailoring mm-hmm. um, in London. It's been the home of tailoring for hundreds of years since Bo Brummel's time. That was pretty special, was seeing all these stores who, you know, seeing, seeing a company that invented the tuxedo. Yeah. Seeing um seeing the company that dressed uh Mick Jagger and the Beatles. Um seeing all these things who who had great social impact or or, or dressed like desi- designed the look for an era. Um was a very interesting very interesting part of my career was sitting standing there and knowing that I too was a tailor in London. That was very special. And I mean you already had the the job lined up there, obviously. Did you know anyone in London, or was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I knew no one. I had a number of like the nephew of the ex-wife of my mother's childhood friend. I had his phone number, right. uh, <laughs> and there was a few people like that who were all like, "Oh, I know someone in London." No, that's all right. They, they said you just reach out to them. And yeah. they'll make sure that they help you out. And so I did that, and not one of them got back to me. Oh, <laughs> but no. I'm not too offended because it was it was it was all you know all the all the work of very well-meaning people um, yeah. who didn't actually feel like helping someone else get settled in. London is yeah. a very large city. Yeah, I got I was there for like three days five years ago, and I found it very overwhelming the the time mm. that I was there. Um, yeah. I sort of wish I could go back and have more time there and sort of settle in a little bit more um, and, like, maybe get, like, the, the hang of the city. But, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a big place. <laughs> and I was, I, was, I was just feeling like I was getting the hang of it. I was just, you know, getting to the point where I had a number of, you know, I had my bars and I had the places mm-hmm. that I could go without having to look up directions. Uh, and then uh, lockdown began. So it's been yes. very different since then. Yeah, I can imagine it's, you know, of the 
what, maybe nine months that you've been there for three and a half of them you've been in lockdown. So have you still been out of work or? No, so I've been totally furloughed um, because, Mm. partially because my role is still very much one of a learner. Uh, I don't. I don't do any work that is not supervised, mm-hmm. um, which I'm perfectly comfortable with, but also means there's not really much I can do from home. Do from I also home, don't, yeah. I don't, I don't have a sewing machine. I don't have a workbench. Yeah. So, and it just didn't make sense for the company to provide me with those things, which I'm, I'm fine with. We were all just, the, the whole company just ground to a halt for, yeah. for three months straight. Um, we're gradually starting plan our plans on how to open up um, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of stuff about wearing masks with customers and lots of sanitizing, but yeah, it is, it is not a job that we can do and avoid people. We can't have people measure themselves. Yeah. We can't have people fit themselves. We have to be up close and personal. Yeah. Uh, so that's an interesting challenge to figure out. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, now, to diverge from tailoring a little bit towards the end here, um, this isn't necessarily super relevant, but when I was coming up for questions with you, I was reminded of this memory, and it just made me laugh so much. <laughs> so um, when we were younger, you, me, and our friend Jack, we went to go see Frank Woodley perform, um, mm-hmm. the comedian Frank Woodley. And and there are two funny things that happen on this night. The first is I I think I might have even done one earlier. I snort when I laugh sometimes. <laughs> and I have a vivid memory of that being like the first time I properly snorted in a laugh. And I remember <laughs> I was sitting in between you and Jack and, you know, Frank Woodley said something mm. funny, as you might expect at a comedy show. And this mm-hmm. massive snort came out of me. And I just remember you and Jack just like full on pivoting and staring at me <laughs> and just like disbelief of what had just come out of my mouth. And since then I snort when I laugh and it's, it's <laughs> terrible. Um, but I also remember that, I think you shook Frank Woodley's hand afterwards. I think we met him. And we you lined shook... up in the we lined up in the uh, autograph line. We didn't have anything to autograph. Um, no. We were right near the end, and I was frantically searching through my bag for something <laughs> for him to sign. Uh, and instead, what I found was a railway spike, a rusted railway spike that, oh, yes. for some reason, I had been carrying around um, as people in year 11 in search of a personality might <laughs> carry around objects of interest. Uh, and I decided to give it to him. And so I went up and I said, I'm very sorry, Mr. Woodley, I don't have a poster, but I really enjoyed your show. Uh, here is a railway spike. <laughs> and he looked up at me and he said, you know, no one's ever given me a railway spike. And I don't really know what to make of that, but I'm glad you enjoyed the show. And I shook his hand and we moved on. Mm -hmm. And I also remember just on like the whole train ride home, you were like, I am never washing this hand again. It has been touched by Frank Woodley. Um, So I just wanted to make sure, have you been washing your hands during the pandemic? (laughs) I have. That that lasted not very long, maybe an hour. Um, But... I, I did actually, uh, in the in a brief period when I had my own little workspace uh, in between working for one company and another, I had my own little workshop for about a year. Um, 
which in which a time in which I filled almost nine to five with uh, self-learning. Yeah. I had a, a couple of clients over that year, but most of that was me uh, reading my collection of old books, trying things out, wasting some cloth, um, which kind of has to happen. You have to go and make some mistakes. Um, but during that year when I was uh, forming, uh, forming thoughts of how I could make this into a, a business on my own, uh, one of the things I did was reach out to Frank Woodley to see if he would be interested in, uh, if I made him a suit, would he do a photo shoot for me? Um, and there was some interest, but it was about the time of the new tour of his and it didn't line up. So we didn't get very far with that. But um, That's kind of cool, though, that, you know, at least there was like a little bit of, of conversation. That's really cool. Yeah. And yeah. who knows, maybe at some point I will dress Frank Woodley and I will <laughs> after after the entire process is finished and I have delivered the finished suit. Only then would I ask him if he still had the railway story. <laughs> <laughs> Because I don't want him to think I'm a nutter before then. <laughs> um, uh, I reckon you could, like, you know, there's lots of photos of Frank Woodley. You could probably figure out his measurements and just, like, show up at the show <laughs> with a suit for him. That would be a pretty bold move. Yeah, yeah. Just like, here you go. It's better than a railway spike. <laughs> <laughs> um, now... Uh, we're getting close to the end here, but I do always okay. like ask a random question during each episode, mm. and it's different for each person. Uh, so my one for you is, if you could only use one word for the rest of your life, what word would you choose? Um, I'm desperately... <laughs> <laughs> this is something that requires a lot to think, but something that I don't want to produce any dead air while I think. Um, oh, we can edit out dead air. That's fine. <laughs> That's the one thing I, think, I can do. <laughs> I actually, I almost think if it's going to be any word, but just the one word, I think it almost doesn't matter what the word is because then it all becomes about emphasis and performance. Yes, absolutely. Like I, I thought of this question and then immediately thought of Hodor from Game of Thrones, mm. who um, just says Hodor. And still manages to get, you know, the message across, I guess. Hmm. And so I think what I would then have to do is spend a lot of time looking for a word that is just fun to say. <laughs> because if I'm going to say, if I'm going to have to say only the one word for the rest of my life, I'm going to enjoy doing it. And so it would probably be something with a very strong consonant sound, something like thunk. Oh, that's a good one. Um, because I can imagine... You can, it's all about, um, you know, once you've got a couple of loud consonants, it's just about, you know, putting a bit of intention behind it and people, you can pretend you're saying anything. Yeah. Um, I think you could cheat the system a little bit, though, if you chose a word with lots of syllables, because I think, like, maybe you'd be allowed to just say, like, part of the word. Or you just say, mm, and maybe you can And maybe you can, like, break it up a little a, bit. A, like, if your word was supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, like, you could break that up and, like, someone says something, you could just say super or... <laughs> You know, I don't know. Yeah. Or um, uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. Or if you just wanted to, like, creep out people, people really don't like the word moist, mm. and you could just use that all the time. That's quite you the... You wouldn't have many friends. That's quite the commitment to the bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, it and would now... be fun to have some... Sorry, go ahead. You go, you go. It, it would be fun to have something that sounds... Uh, vaguely 
vulgar the first time you hear it, but then the more times you hear it, it becomes very mundane. Yeah, it just no longer is. Like Mingus. Mingus. That's Mingus. Good. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> At first it sounds dirty, and the, the more you hear it, it sounds very ordinary. When you hear it, it just, it's just not a word anymore. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, um, the last question I want to ask you, which I ask everybody, the show is called Loud and Seemingly Confident because that's how I once described myself. Would you consider yourself to be a confident person? No, I wouldn't. Um, no? Which is very strange when I say, sometimes when I think about my life and I'm like, I've moved across the planet to chase my dream job. Yeah. Um, leaving everything behind. Uh, but I'm not very confident. <laughs> Which I think is, I think it's part of it, is that you can still do, I think confidence is amazing, but I also think that you can still pretty much do everything, it just takes a bit longer. Yeah. You just have to convince yourself, you just have to go over things, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think a little bit of, uh, just being a little bit neurotic never hurt anyone. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I think it's kind of like, you know, people say that that bravery isn't not being afraid, it's doing something despite being afraid so hmm. you know confidence isn't like you know like you said moving you know across the other side of the world that's not necessarily confidence it's it's doing it despite the fact that maybe you're not confident about it hmm. that, that I spent the entire plane trip over going oh god what have I done <laughs> <laughs> I miss my slippers I miss knowing where I live I, I lived in I've lived in this is the fifth house I've been in since I've been over here um so between September and January, I lived in five different houses. Wow. Uh, which was a, lot of a bit of a ride. And I spent the whole time, the whole time, double, like, questioning myself and, and double checking. And mm. uh, but, I'm, but I'm still here. So. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please subscribe, share. Uh, write us a review it really helps uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Chelsea J Heaney that's H-E-A-N-E-Y and you can follow the podcast both on Instagram and Facebook at Loud and Seemingly Confident do you have anything you want to plug Richard? Uh, I have an Instagram which is not very well uh, maintained but has a pretty good I've been I've been keeping it for years and so it's got a pretty good uh, cross-section of uh, my work and, and also again if anyone is interested in getting and following my footsteps if there's anything i can do to help it's a good place to reach me um which is at saxby tailoring s-a-x-b-y tailoring on instagram beautiful all right thank you very much and we'll see you all next week amazing thank you <laughs>